Well, good morning, church. It is so great to be with all of you. I love the confidence in the voices in that video, and I hope you do and are inspired as such um, as well with me this morning. My name is Aaron Foster, and I have the pleasure of serving on our team with our high school students. And on behalf of everyone on our staff team here at Christ Church, we just want to say we love you. And however you're joining us, um, whether you're joining us online or you're here in the beautiful sanctuary with us this morning, we are glad you're here and we'd love to get connected with you. So like Dave mentioned, fill out a connect card, say hello to our chat hosts online, or say hi to Dave or myself or anybody else with a Christchurch name tag after the service. And we'd love to get you um, pulled into the Christchurch community of which I have felt so blessed by over the, the years that I've been a part of it. Well, friends, we are in the final weeks of our Credo series, and I pray that this study of the Apostles' Creed has been or will continue to be um, offering you new learning and has been uh, maybe an impactful refresher for you as it has been for me. In fact, I would love for us to take that posture today as we prepare for today's discussion on the line of, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, a posture of learning and being open to being reshaped and reformed by the Spirit in a creed that we have said so many times in the past. You see, the idea of the forgiveness of sins may be brand new for some of us, and it may be fundamental for others of us, but let's all come before God together today to pray for his spirit to grow in all of us, wherever we may fall on our walks of faith. Would you pray with me now? Holy Spirit, we pray that you would just come and move in and through us today, Lord. Wherever we are on our journey in relationship with you, Lord, we present ourselves here today humbly, and we ask that you would move in us. God, would you deepen our convictions for you? Would you help us to make new convictions for you? Would you help us to understand just a little bit more of the amazing love and grace that you offer us? Lord, we pray that we would be moved by your word and would be inspired by your spirit as we worship you today through this time. In Jesus' name we pray as one voice. Amen. Well, as we know, the Apostles' Creed is formed by a series of I believe statements. And, if, and like we do often at church and like we will a little bit later today, we often recite these beliefs aloud together as an act of worship and as an affirmation of our faith in Jesus. We say aloud that we believe these statements to be true. But I confess, and I wonder how many of you might resonate with this with me, is that sometimes, all too regularly, these words become just that, just words that I say. Sometimes I realize that the words that I'm saying don't really carry the weight that they deserve, the weight and the meaning that they should. Realizing that as I say the creed over and over again, it just becomes commonplace. It becomes regular, routine, mundane. I'm losing the beauty of it. Maybe for you, the I believe sections are more similar to saying, I believe that the Cubs are going to win the World Series this year, or I believe it's supposed to rain this afternoon. The word believe conveying more of an educated guess, a, a feeling, an inclination, a false hope if you're a Cubs fan like me, rather than a deep and life-giving conviction. Or maybe you're in the part of your faith journey right now where you're honestly just trying to work out, do I believe any of this? Wherever we're at, though, 
Our prayer is that this series has been fruitful for us to move forward in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Today, I want to dive into Scripture for help and wisdom in how we might grow in our belief in the truth of God's forgiveness of our sins. And we're going to read from Psalm 130 today to hear just a beautiful and honest human conviction of God's forgiveness for our sins. Now, for those in our high school community, you may be sick of me saying this, but I love the Psalms. I say this all the time to our Koinonia students. I love the Psalms. And these songs and poems paint just a beautiful picture of the full human experience lived in relationship with God. The the psalmist captures the highs of life and the lows of life, the moments of trust and full, um, uh, full faith in the Lord, but also the moments where there's a lack of trust in the Lord. But all of these moments in the psalms are described in the context of intimate prayer and intimate relationship and conversation with God. The psalms offer us in this way a guide for prayer through all of our heart's conditions. No matter where we are at in our lives, the psalms encourage us to do that, to do that life in relationship with God. And so let's dive in. And as you listen to these words from the Psalms, um, I'd invite you to, to bring the Lord into your thoughts and your reactions. As these words wash over you, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? What are you remembering? What are you picturing as you hear this passage? This is Psalm 130. It says this, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. Now that first stanza, it gives us an immediate look into the experience that the psalmist is going through, drawing us into the emotions and the heart behind the words of the psalm. Right from the start, we get a, state, we get a sense of the state of the heart of the writer. It says, out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. The word depths is used elsewhere in the Old Testament scriptures to refer to the seas. And in this passage, it evokes in us an image of a sea of despair that the writer finds themselves in. A state of darkness being tossed and turned by the currents of chaos, separated from the Lord because of a cycle of sin and iniquity in their lives. The depths for the reader, for for me at least, and I imagine for you, drags our memories back to moments in our lives where we found ourselves caught up in our own brokenness. Moments where our ego trumped care for others in our leadership. Moments when addiction where this was the ruler of our lives. Times when we, used, when we used and we abused people to get what we wanted, to get what would elevate our own status. See, I'd imagine you are all feeling 
the weight of the depths because we've been there. We have almost a visceral, physical reaction as we relate with the psalmist right off the bat. And that's that human experience that I love so much about the psalms. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. You see, the cry from the depths is one that seeks only which God can grant. In February of 2019, a team of us from our student ministry uh, department here at Christ Church spent a few days out in Pasadena, California at the Fuller Seminary's Youth Institute as part of a research cohort um, and working on a project that they were running at the time. And after a long day of small groups and sessions and meetings, Pete Stearns and I were killing some time before heading in the hotel lobby um, before we headed off to bed. And we ended up striking up a conversation with a 30-something-year-old man by the name of Chad. And now before we had ever... Um, started talking to him, we were overhearing his conversations with the people around him, and it was hard to ignore because of the, the volume of his voice. And through our overhearing, we were starting to gain some knowledge about who Chad was. We decided that he was crass, he was very confident, and he was towing the line of being belligerent. But when we finally started talking to him and he turned his attention to us and he learned that we were in ministry, he began to pour out his heart, sharing with us the depths that he was engulfed in. You see, Chad shared with us that for years he had served in the Marine Special Operations Command. And in that time, he was specifically and specially trained to carry out missions all across the world in defense of the nation, but missions that Success meant often a loss of life. He was racked with guilt, racked with shame. And to cope with those emotions that were swirling inside of him, he turned to substances and he turned to alcohol. He watched himself grow abusive as the relationships that he was in were affected by those vices. And as that cycle continued to pull him deeper and deeper into the depths to the point where he could only think of one way out. And that was next on his list of things to try. And that night, Chad was crying out to the Lord from the depths. Soberly aware suddenly of the consequences of his actions, unable to forgive himself, Chad was quite literally crying out to God in the middle of the hotel lobby. Often it is in that space, it's in the cry from the depths where the path towards experiencing the fullness of the forgiveness of God actually begins. If we don't first recognize and admit the extent of our own sin and brokenness, fully see it and understand it, then we won't ever truly get to experience God's forgiveness. And not because he doesn't offer it freely to you and to me, but because if I don't see sin in myself and I don't see how that is pervasive in my relationships and experiences in my life, then I won't have a reason to accept God's forgiveness. The psalmist continues in Psalm 130. It says, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. So that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchman waits for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. And in these sections we see that even from the depths, 
there can be confidence in God's forgiveness. Naming the truth that if God kept record of our sins, if he remembered the ways that we chose to order our lives to create separation between ourselves and him, none of us can stand. The psalmist says, but with you there is forgiveness. And that confidence continues as the psalm goes on. I will wait for the Lord. My whole being waits more than watchmen wait for the morning. At that time, Watchmen were in charge of keeping an eye out over the camp or the city for external threats that might come in. They would be the first people to alert the gates that someone was approaching or if there was an enemy drawing near. So you can imagine that nights in the watching industry were a little difficult as they strained um, with no light to see the surrounding land. And so watchmen would wait expectantly from sundown for the first glimmer of the light in the morning in the east. And that would signify that things for their shift were going to start to get easier and better for them. Martin Luther described this waiting for the Lord with the image of a block of wood held in the hand of a master carver. That single block contains both the old and the new all at the same time. And the more of the, as the more of the old is cut away from the block, the more of the new begins to appear. The waiting that the psalmist is experiencing, that we experience as well, is the waiting for God's truth of his forgiveness and grace to be true for me in my life, to be true in my soul, and that's through the process of sanctification. We'll be talking about it in just a second. God's forgiveness is always true and always constant, but we continue to learn and experience more the fruit of it when we can focus on the often slow and movement from the old to the new. And just like that, that psalm is giving us an example for how we can experience God's forgiveness so that when we recite the Apostles' Creed together as a church, there can be some confidence, some meaning, some strength behind our words when we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And the model that we see in this psalm is this. First of all, recognize the extent of the impact of sin on our lives in the lives of those around us. The psalmist knows that they find themselves in the depths because of their own doing, their own sin, their own iniquity, because we see that in the psalmist petitioning the Lord to hear my cry for mercy. After we recognize the extent of impact of sin in our lives, the psalmist is encouraging us to embrace the breadth of God's grace and forgiveness that covers all sin. The breadth of his grace is far greater than the extent of our sin. The psalmist says, but with you, there is forgiveness. There's confidence in that. And thirdly, once we have recognized the extent of sin in our lives and we've embraced the wonderful grace of God's forgiveness that covers that sin, we are to live like we are forgiven. We're called to change the way we live and live in new light with new perspective the psalmist says, I will wait for you. I will wait for your truth to become true in my experience as well as I take this path towards sanctification and through sanctification. Theologian N.T. Wright shares a story of a young adult looking to furnish her first apartment. Her parents were so proud of their daughter, and as I imagine, um, parents with young adults leaving the house for the very first time, they were very excited to have her move out. 
and they decided to surprise her with a beautiful armchair that had been passed down in, from generation to generation. They knew their daughter loved this piece of furniture. But not only that, they had gone one step further to recover the chair, switching out the dated fabric with the one that matched her living area perfectly. They were blessed to offer that gift, and she was blessed and excited to receive it. Not long after, however, disaster struck like it typically finds a way of doing, and at a housewarming party, a brunch with her closest friends, there was a large uh, cup of coffee that was spilled all over this brand new upholstered chair that had been passed down. And it went unnoticed for hours. The stain was fully set in. Once she noticed, the young woman panicked and she tried everything she could do to pull the stain out, scrubbing it with warm water, cold water, soap. She went to Google and YouTube to find all the the random tricks of pulling out stains from fabric, but to no avail, the stain actually just got worse and worse with everything she tried. She prayed that her parents would maybe push back their next visit to the apartment so that she could go take it to the um, embroidery shop, get it reimpolstered. And she knew, though, deep down, that telling them what happened was inevitable, that they were going to find out. And so she braced herself as she opened the door when her parents came to the apartment next, knowing that they'd go straight to the living room to see their gift in its new home. And as they moved into the living room and their eyes met the stain, her eyes met the floor. But she was surprised when she started to hear from the other room some excited tones from her parents. As it turns out, her parents had just come across this brand new product, brand new science that fully eliminates coffee stains from any fabric to the point that you would never even know that the stain existed in the first place. You see, Tom Wright uses that story to wonderfully illustrate how God's grace works. And I want to also use it to ask a couple questions about our three steps of finding more confidence in her forgiveness. Because as I often think about forgiveness, there's a couple main questions that stick out in my mind. First of all, the question is, if we have this coffee stain remover product, why does it matter to me to recognize the extent of the stain? In other words, why do I need to come to terms with my sin? Why do I need to confront it? Why do I need to confess it, to name it, if God is just going to offer me this free grace anyway? Second question I want to pose is, if we have this amazing, life-changing, revolutionary product, why shouldn't we just go about dumping vats of coffee over all of our furniture, knowing that it's all going to be okay in the end? If the breadth of God's forgiveness is so great, why do I need to change the lifestyle that I've come to enjoy, even if it is maybe a little bit sinful? See, these are important questions and are often at the forefront of our minds when we think about God, the the breadth of God's grace and forgiveness. And I would love to turn to 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through chapter 2, verse 2 to help shed some light on the process of forgiveness. 1 John says this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. These words from 1 John are some of the most theologically rich on the topic of forgiveness that we see in the Bible. He writes so straightforwardly about how we can experience God's forgiveness through being honest about ourselves and honest about who God is. And this passage from 1 John also helps us find answers to those two tough questions that I posed just a moment ago. Firstly, if God's forgiveness is always available, why does it matter that I recognize and name my sin? Turning to the passage, the author has two statements that have to do with this very idea. We read, one, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And two, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him, God, out to be a liar and his word is not in us. This is speaking to the fundamental truth that we are imperfect. We are prone to wander, as the great hymn says, and that God is our Redeemer, and through the sacrifice of his Son, Jesus, we are made whole again. Making the claim that we do not have sin, that that isn't a part of our human experience, it denies the truth about who we are and about who our dependency lies on, Jesus Christ. Claiming that we have not sinned or or failing to recognize our specific iniquities in our lives renders Christ's sacrifice for us absolutely useless. Essentially, we call Christ a liar, saying, you say that you sacrificed for my sins, but (laughs) I haven't sinned. There's no need for the sacrifice. To experience the forgiveness of Christ, we must confront and confess our iniquities to him. And secondly, it's not an uncommon thought to take that amazing grace of God for granted and his forgiveness for granted, and adopting a mindset that says, because I'm forgiven already, I can kind of live however I want. God's forgiveness is always going to be there. John speaks to that idea by saying, my dear children, I love how he starts that. He invites us into an intimate conversation with him saying, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. And while he's aware that the idea of having no sin is an unreachable goal for humanity, he's bluntly describing the process of sanctification. That because of his sacrifice for us and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to strive to be more and more like Jesus Christ every day. Meaning that we do not become complacent in our sin, but continually humble ourselves to the Lord and to the community of saints around us to help us recognize our brokenness to point out the places in our lives where we are falling short and to work to repent and turn away from that behavior. Our call as those who are recipients of the grace of God is to live in such a way that we always seek to grow in Christ. You'll notice as well that our three-step pathway for growing confidence in God's faithfulness is reflected in this passage from 1 John as well, not just Psalm 130. Old Testament New Testament, God's forgiveness is, of course, constant. So let's take a look. Let's rehash those three steps in light of this new passage. First of all, recognize the extent of um, the impact of sin in our lives. John says that we must not deceive ourselves or call God a liar by denying our own sinfulness. We have to recognize it. Secondly, embracing the breadth of God's grace and forgiveness. First John says he is faithful and just, and he will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not just ours, for the sins 
of the world. And finally, three, to live like we have been forgiven. John writes, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Pointing out to the reader that there is a different way of life in store for somebody who has received the grace and forgiveness of God. To continue to add a little bit of color to that idea that we should live differently, that we should live like we are forgiven, I want us to turn back to Psalm 130, if you will, which is part of a group of the Psalms that are called the Songs of Ascent. This handful of Psalms were songs that were meant to be sung um, communally by the Hebrew people as they made uh, pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And as they traveled in these groups to visit that city, the people would sing these prayers together in one voice to remind themselves of the truth about their God and as an act of worship, just like we do with our hymns and songs today. They were called songs of ascent because the journey to Jerusalem from any direction meant for a climb. It was a city on a hill, and as the travelers approached Jerusalem, their songs would rise as communal prayers, not just for themselves as individuals anymore, but now taking the voice of the community and crying out to God prayers for the community, for their nation, for their people as a whole. And so I would love, with that in mind, um, to think about this challenge that that passage gives us. We can be challenged again by this passage in how we seek to live like we have been forgiven. Let's read the last verses of this song of ascent. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. With him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. What strikes me is that the song begins to address Israel as a nation, as a people. It is no longer a personal experience about the author author, or an address to us as individuals, but instead it now serves as a call to the whole community to put their hope in the Lord, to recognize the redemption that he offers us communally. So when the people sang sang of these cries of the depths and of the Lord's forgiveness— This was a transformational experience and a formational experience for them as a community. You can imagine that it caused them to not only think about their own individual transgressions, their own individual brokenness, own individual sins and iniquities, but also it would cause them to start thinking about the brokenness of the community as a whole. Now, I'm struck that this is an important challenge for us today in the context of our 21st century century American church and, for frankly, our society in general. It's no secret that there has been abuses in the church at large. There has been brokenness within leadership and decision-making and societal injustices that are reflective of our individual sin and brokenness but portrayed on a much greater and more destructive, often, scale. So what would it look like if we, as the church, as God's children, could confidently stand up and say together in one voice that we believe in the forgiveness of sins? To name the places where we communally and societally have fallen short of God's outline of life together for us, where we have slighted people, where we have pushed them away, where we have offered them a distorted and inaccurate view of God's love. Part of this living like we are a people forgiven is being willing to lead into 
and to be a part of the sanctification process for the church, for the nation, for humanity. The psalm ends by saying that he, God himself, will redeem Israel as a nation from all of their sins. And the same is true for us today. God will forgive, redeem, and reconcile us today, but we must follow the path laid out in Scripture to experience and and find confidence in that forgiveness. Friends, as the psalmist makes clear, the path of forgiveness is not always comfortable. Sanctification is not always pleasant. But to find our confidence in God's forgiveness of our sins, we must fully face our brokenness. And sometimes that means being in the depths. And some of you may be there right now. And as difficult and as isolating as that space may be for you right now, the scriptures are unrelentingly clear that the Lord is with us and forgives us when we honestly cry out to him and seek his grace. God does not want us to remain in the depths or to have any separation between ourselves and him, and he proved that with his amazing grace displayed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. So I pray today that individually, each of us, us as the church as a whole, can continue to grow in the confidence and the unbelievable truth of God's forgiveness and grace. It begins with one, an honest look at our own brokenness and bringing that forward humbly before God. Two, knowing that God's forgiveness and grace spans far wider than we can ever imagine, dwarfing the extent of our sin. Then knowing that we are called to three, live as people who are forgiven, continuing to seek sanctification in our individual lives and also be mirrors of God's grace and forgiveness to all those around us so together as the body of Christ we can go forward and be confident in God's forgiveness from a larger scale. One of the beautiful things about the church is that when one of us, when each of us grows in Christ individually, the church grows as well. And when the church grows by the Spirit in humility, it affects the community around it. And so, friends, our individual growth of the church, our individual growth and the growth of the church plays a major role in how our community, our nation, our society all grow in Christ, in confidence, in the forgiveness of sin. So as you and I grow to that end, in the truth that, we, that while we were still sinners, Jesus displayed an amazing grace for us to offer us eternal life through his sacrifice on the cross. We come alongside the Holy Spirit's work in growing our church and our communities. So let's go and work to deepen our convictions in these truths that we believe. And by his Spirit, let our lives show that we believe in the forgiveness of sins through God's amazing grace. Would you pray with me? God, we are humbled. Humbled by your grace, humbled by your spirit, humbled by your love. Lord, and we pray boldly that you would help encourage us to take a difficult step of inwardly looking at our shortcomings, of our sin, of our iniquities, God, so that we can take the step forward to grow in confidence in your forgiveness. God, that we can fully experience the grace that you pour over all of us. God, and as we do that individually, we pray that as your church, that can start to have an effect in our world. God, that we can be convicted, that we can believe in your forgiveness and your 
amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.